Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Jason and singers. Beautiful singing this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes this summer. It's an interesting study. It's a poetic book, so therefore it's, uh, it's not like a the, uh, book of theology. It doesn't say things directly. It says them in a poetic way. And uh, sometimes uh, it's been misunderstood and misappropriated, but uh, I think with a few key thoughts, it becomes uh, open to us uh, what God is saying. Remember, not only was this written by Solomon, the great king, but it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God speaking to us about how to find purpose and meaning and peace and joy in life. How not to, he, he talks mostly about how not to find it, but that's the poetic part of it. And uh, on seven different occasions, he gives uh, conclusions. Uh, there's 12 chapters, there's seven conclusions uh, laced through there. And we'll see one of those today if time permits. Chapter 5. Now, I've got to move rather quickly because this chapter has 20 verses, and I'd like to cover the whole chapter today. And uh, so uh, I can't do much more than a kind of a uh, running commentary, but I think it'll be meaningful to you. Look at uh, chapter 1 and hold your place there in chapter 5. We've, we've got to see these keys to understanding up here in chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Again, that's Solomon. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity is used 38 times in these 12 chapters. It's, it's really the theme of the book is vanity. The word vanity there, the Hebrew word, means uh, meaningless, emptiness, worthless. And when he says all is vanity, he means that. Uh, we know from the, from the rest of the book, he's talking about all kinds of life. Uh, your work, your livelihood, your family, it's all meaningless. It's all empty. And it uh, doesn't sound much like what the Bible usually says, of course. But there's a reason for that. Again, he's speaking in poetic language. Look at verse 3. What profit hath a man of all his labor which is taken under the sun. See that phrase, under the sun? It's used 27 times in these 12 chapters. Three other times it says, under heaven, and, uh, which means the same thing. So 30 times he says, th this thing that is empty is what's under the sun. It's what's under heaven. In other words, if we're living just under the sun, we're not taking into account what's over the sun. That is, God himself is over the sun. He's sovereign. He's the creator. If you don't take him into account and have a personal relationship with him, then all of life is empty. Uh, all of life is meaningless. There's no purpose to life because he created us for himself. And so if we're not in a relationship with him, the very reason we were created, that very thing is missing in our lives. So it's, it's kind of his way of saying... Life is empty without God. Everything's vanity without God in that phrase, under the sun. Now, with that said, we come to chapter 5 and look at verse 1. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. 
for they consider not that they do evil. Pray with me. Father, bless our time together now, and may we listen, really listen to your word, and may you teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a man by the name of Chloe that lives in the Ivory Coast. And every weekend he would travel to a village called Sepakea. And in that village, he preached to a little handful of Christians in a little tiny church. And he traveled 20 miles to do it every weekend. This village was mostly Muslim and mostly got along with the Christians. But there were some radical Muslims in that village. So one day when Chloe had traveled his 20 miles and was fixing to leave, go home, and he was by himself for a few moments, these radical Muslims found him by himself and beat him severely. The man who's telling his story and speaking on behalf of Chloe put it like this. These are the words of Chloe spoken by the writer of the article. He said, the blows seemed to come from everywhere. And Chloe tried to wrap his arms around his head to protect himself. Although he didn't know how many attackers there were, he felt the sharp thud of each blow as he lost consciousness. His attackers shouted at him, mocking his faith and mocking his Jesus. Chloe prayed silently, crying out to God to give him strength. He was taken to a hospital, not in that village, but into another place where there was a hospital. And when they had dressed his wounds and when he had regained consciousness, the police were called and the police asked him, who had beaten him? Did he get a look at him? And he said, no, he had no idea what they looked like because he was blind and had been blind for many, many years. Here was a man walking 20 miles to church and he was blind and he did it regularly and faithfully. Many people in other parts of the world walk long distances to church because they know how important church is, that God has called us to assemble ourselves together. And yet it's remarkable how flippant people are in America about church attendance. They go if they feel like it and go for a while, quit for a year, and so forth. But in many places, church is important to people. So it was with Chloe and that little handful that was there in that church in this small village. Came across an article uh, that uh, some, said somebody asked a past, pastor to define what is faithful church attendance. And he said, all I ask is that we apply the practical standard that we apply to other things in life. For instance, he says, consider this, if your car started one out of every three times you tried to start it, would you consider it faithful? If you didn't show up for work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit 
a day now and then. Would you excuse it by saying, oh, well, it works most of the time. If your water heater greets you with cold water two or three mornings a week when you take a shower, would you consider that faithful? If you missed a couple of mortgage payments in uh, this year, would your mortgage, mortgage holder say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 is not bad? <laughs> what if your phone company worked most of the time, but two or three days a week? You couldn't call or text or use your phone at all. We wouldn't consider that faithful. God requires from us that we be faithful. It is required of God's stewards to be faithful. And we're called not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Faithfulness is an important part of uh, our service for Christ. And he's going to talk about worship here and attending the church, the house of God. But before we... Look into it. Let me show you a quick outline of the chapter. Look back at your screen there. And the first, uh, the first seven verses talk about worship. Going to the house of God. The uh, second uh, two verses talk about justice. Then we have money. Seven verses talking about money. And then we have joy. Those things are important to all of us. Worship and justice and money and joy. And these chap- this one chapter talks about those important issues. Well, with that said, let's go back to verse 1. Keep your Bibles open. He says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Now, when they, in Solomon's day, when they went to the house of God, it was the temple. It was the temple that Solomon himself had built. David wanted to build a temple. It was in his heart, but God wouldn't let him build the temple. Instead, he let his son Solomon build the temple. And it was big and beautiful and a wonderful, beautiful place. And people went there to worship God in the Old Testament. And so that's the house of God that's being referred to here. Now, it certainly applies to us as well, though, when we come to church. Now, it's not really theologically correct to call the, the, a church building like this the house of God. It's okay, but it's not theoretic. Uh, theologically correct. In the New Testament, you and I are the house of God. You and I are the dwelling place. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So uh, you and I are the house of God. And when we gather together in a group, the Lord's there with us, and whether we're in a building like this or whether we're in a basement or an attic somewhere, uh, that we are ourselves the church of God. And the, the church collectively in the New Testament is the house of God as well, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to refer to attending church to the house of God to make this connection here, because that's the application for us as we read this text. Now, with that in mind, go back, keep thy foot. The word keep means to watch, be careful. And the word foot means your step. So it, we might interpret it like this, watch your step. When you go to church, watch your step. Don't hurt anything. Don't cause any trouble. Don't cause any problems. Watch your step when you go to the house of God. Go carefully and prayerfully. Watch uh, and keep your foot when thou goest to the house of God. And then it says, and be ready to hear. That word hear in the Hebrew uh, is translated 69 times. In the King James, 69 times that same word is translated obey. 
Now, it's translated more than that here, but it's translated 69 times uh, as uh, obey. 89 times. Did I say 69? 89 times. And, um, and so this word can be translated either way, this Hebrew word. This Hebrew word means to hear with an attitude to obey. It means to pay close attention. It means to focus in. When you, go to, when you go to church, focus and listen and be attentive to what's going on and hear what God is saying. This is important instruction God is giving us about worship. When you go to the house of God, hear, listen. Listen to the words of the song. I mean, I know we live in a busy, busy world, and it's easy to be thinking about what we're going to do this afternoon or what we have to do Monday when we go back to work or what we did last week. And our mind can be filled with all kinds of things. But God is saying when you go to the house of God, go to listen and be attentive and to focus and to listen with an attitude to obey. When we, when we sing, we ought to think about those words. Don't just sing them in an empty way. Some people don't even sing them. You might say, well, I'm a, I'm a terrible singer. Well, if you don't want to sing out loud, then whisper them to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and sing them softly if you want to. Now, even if you're a bad singer, though, I advise you go ahead and sing out because people sitting around you, they don't mind. They can't sing any better than you can. And so uh, just sing and think about those words. Let, them, let their meaning resonate in your heart and then listen to the Word of God. You know, nothing's more important than the Word of God. The Word that God has given unto us. We should come to listen and focus and be attentive with an attitude to obey. Now, you might say, well, preacher, sometimes you get pretty boring. Well, yeah, I know. I agree. Sometimes I bore myself. Uh, But it's not me that matters. It's God's Word that matters. We We should hang on every word. And we should be thinking, when I start to tell something to you, we should be thinking, what does that word mean? And what does that, how does that apply to me? What is God saying to me? And we should hang on every word of God. So when you go into the house of God, watch, be careful, watch your step, and go to listen. And it's better, look back at it, middle of the verse, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Wow. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Those animal sacrifices all pointed to the Lord Jesus himself on the cross, who was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So we don't offer those anymore. They did, of course, in Solomon's day. So what this would mean to them was, if you, if you came just to go through the motions, you might, offer a, you might offer a blood sacrifice. You might do what's supposed to be done under the law of Moses and all of that. But if you were just going through the motions, God says that uh, you're foolish. You should go to hear, to worship, to be sincere in all that you do. He says, for they consider not that they do evil. You can do evil by, by your attitude when it comes to worship and to the house of God. Now, you and I, 
we, we don't offer sacrifices, but we, in the same way, we can just come out of habit. We can just come because we think we should, or we come because somebody wanted us to, or we, can, uh, we come uh, because uh, we think we have to. But we ought to come with a heart's desire to hear God speak to us through the music and through the preaching of His Word. So He gives us these warnings. Verse 2, and again, so much could be said about worship. We could talk about the lifting of hands. We could talk about uh, singing and, and so forth. But we're just taking what's here in our text. Then he says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Wow. You know, the book of Proverbs says a lot about watching our tongue and not talking too much and so forth. Matter of fact, this chapter is a little more like the book of Proverbs than the previous chapters have been. And, uh, but here he says, be careful not to talk too much. Now, that doesn't mean don't say hello to your neighbor and that kind of thing. But the idea is uh, we should be listening to God instead of telling God stuff. Um, we sh- God is the one in heaven. The idea of that, we're the one on earth. The idea is he's the sovereign one. He's the one we should be listening to. He's the one with all the knowledge and all the wisdom. So come to listen instead of the tell God the way he ought to be doing things. And uh, so we're to come to listen. And, uh, and so verse Two at the end, therefore let thy words be few. For a dream, verse 3, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business. The thought here, I believe, is that some people work so long hours and their work is so ingrained in their heart and mind that even when they dream, they dream about business. They dream about, uh, you know, what they're, uh, what they're doing uh, all the time. And so there's an abundance of dreams in that sense. But then he contrasts that, and the fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. Again, the Bible, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, teaches us to be careful with our words. Be careful not to hurt others. Be careful to use our words in a way that encourages people and helps people. And then in verse 4, he talks about vows. Look at verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Then he says in verse 5, Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Now, making a solemn vow was a part of Old Testament worship. And uh, they would promise that they were going to give a certain amount. They would vow that they were going to do certain things for God and hope that God would do certain things for them. It's kind of like bartering with God. Like uh, you're going to do something, it's like you're trying to talk Him into doing something for you because you're going to do something for Him. And the New Testament, things have changed. And I'm going to show you a New Testament passage about that in a moment. 
But for our application to us here, the ideal is, is just a simple promise. Instead of an official uh, public vow, just our promises. Be careful that we don't promise God things that we, that we cannot keep. You know, some people today still bargain with God, barter with God. You know, if you, they're going through a financial crisis and they say, Lord, if you'll help me through this, I'll start giving X amount of money to, to the church. Or maybe they're, they're sick and they say, Lord, if you'll help me get... Uh, through this, then I will serve you in this way or that way. I'll do this for you. Bargaining with God. I don't think it's wise to bargain with God. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's going to do what's right and best. The best thing to do is yield your life to Him and to His sovereignty and to who He is and let Him work things out for what's best for you. He knows how to do that. But some people make promises. Here it says, if you make a promise, better keep it. Better off not to make one. And then verse 6 says, Suffer not or allow not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. In other words, you sin because you don't keep your word, your promise. And then it says, Neither say thou before the angel, it is an error. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have made that promise. It was a mistake. Now, who is this angel? Uh, I can't imagine there was an angelic being there in the temple that was listening to people's excuses why they couldn't keep their promises. The word, you, you probably know this, heard it many times, I would assume, that the word itself that's translated angel can also and is often translated messenger. Exact same Hebrew word, same thing in the New Testament. Exact same Greek word. You have to tell by the context whether it's referring to a human messenger or an angelic messenger. And so here the King James translators translated it angel, uh, which means messenger. Probably the reference is to one of the Levitical priests who worked in the temple. And, uh, and when someone made a vow, they made them publicly and before this priest. And now they come back to the messenger that is, the priest, and say, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done that, and so forth. And then it says, Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Chastening. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers or various vanities, emptiness. Here's the alternative, though, but fear God. Now, remember the word fear. This is the second time we've seen the word fear in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to see it five times before it's over. It's a very important word in the book. Matter of fact, when he comes to his seventh conclusion, the idea of fear and what it really means is going to be right at the heart of his final conclusion. But this is his second mention of the word fear. And it doesn't mean being afraid like an animal's afraid of a master that beats him or something like that. It means to be in awe of how wonderful and big and glorious God is. To stand in awe of Him and be rightly related, taking your place as a humble creature created by the Almighty Creator. And to worship and yield to Him and submit our lives to Him. That's the idea of this word fear here. That's the attitude we should have towards God. 
So those first seven verses then are about worship. Look, at your, look at back at your screen there. Let me show you a passage from the New Testament. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. The word oath there is a synonym for a vow. So the New Testament says don't take a vow. Just don't take one. Uh, but instead, let your yea be yea. That is, your yes be yes. And let your no be no or your nay be nay. <laughs> In King James terminology. So instead of making vows, just be honest. When you say you're going to do something, do it. If you can't do it, say no. And just be honest with all of your communication. And to making vows, formal vows, are not a part of New Testament worship as it was with Old Testament worship. But... Here's another verse from James that says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Just like on verse 1 there at the last, it says, They consider not that they do evil or sinfully. So we know it's right to give. We know it's right to be faithful. We know it's right to serve the Lord. And we know we should be obeying him. If we don't do those things, those things become sin to us. Or our... our inactivity to do them become sin. So, we have the first seven verses on worship. I'm getting really behind here. I've got to move quickly. Look at verse 8 and 9. We have justice. I could have called it injustice. Maybe that would have been more appropriate, but the word justice is in the text. Look at verse 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at this. In other words, don't be surprised that there's corruption in the courtroom and in the law system. Even if the law system is, is great, the people serving it are, are fallible and they're not perfect. And there's going to be perverting of judgment. Then he says, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. In other words, there's a whole hierarchy of people who are in charge in places of authority, and then other people are more authoritative than them. They're higher than them, and then uh, ultimately there's people higher than them, and those, those uh, a bribe can trickle down from the top, down into the courtroom, or a, a friendship can pervert judgment. And so there is times of perverting of judgment. It's not right or good, absolutely not, but it's going to happen, he says. Don't be surprised when it does. And then he says, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. In other words, regardless of how rich you are, you end up getting your food from the common folk, the farmer. You're fed by the field. You're serviced by the field. Even the king eats vegetables that comes from a farmer from a field. And therefore, up through the chain from the, uh, from the humblest to the most exalted, there can be uh, injustice. Now, move on to verse 10. This begins this section on money. What does he say about money? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. What a statement. People who love money, silver, gold, uh, are just currency. 
People who love money will never be satisfied with money. Money never satisfies. This is one of those vanities, grasping after the wind that Solomon's been talking about. You can't find your joy there. You can't find your satisfaction or purpose in gathering silver or gold or money. And then he says, uh, uh, Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity, emptiness. Some people love the, the silver itself, but some people love the abundance it can buy. They just like to live big, you know. And, uh, but they're never satisfied. No matter how much they increase, they want more and are disappointed they don't have more. And so God warns us not to try to find purpose and meaning and joy in silver, gold, or abundance, or the things of this world. Then he says, when, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owner thereof, saving maybe uh, beholding of them with their eyes? In other words, if you make more, you spend more. And, uh, and the only maybe advantage to having gold is you see it with your eyes. And, and very, the very thought of that, remember this is poetic, Remember, that, and the very thought of that speaks of greed and shallowness that you just want to see it with your eyes. Verse 12 says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. In other words, the common man, the common woman, who works hard every day, goes to work, and they work, and they're tired at the end of the day, their sleep is sweet. They've done what they're supposed to do. They're tired. And so they sleep well. They may have eaten well, or maybe they've eaten meagerly, but they sleep well. The last part of that says, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Rich people don't sleep well. They're always thinking about their money. They're afraid somebody's going to try to take it from them. Uh, if they meet a friend out somewhere, they think that friend is after their money. Or uh, are they afraid they're going to lose it? Or are they thinking about how they can make more? Are they thinking about, why am I so unhappy? Why am I so discontented? And yet I have all this money. And so on and so forth. They don't sleep well. And then, verse 13 says, There is a sore evil, or a terrible evil, which I have seen under the sun. Namely, riches kept for the owner thereof to be to their hurt. In other words, people who gather riches and abundance and money, not only do they not find peace and joy and purpose in that, but they also, these things bring about their own hurt. They steal away whatever enjoyment they could have had. And they lose their, uh, what peace they may have had. And it brings about hurt to them. The New Testament speaks about that as well. Look at verse 14. But those riches perish by evil travail. Evil travail means a great uh, mishap, a great misfortune. Something bad happens. Uh, uh, the stock market falls. Or you make a bad investment and lose your livelihood. Or you, I, you hear every now and then somebody investing their life savings into a, some kind of scheme and lose their life savings. Or... Or maybe a, a physical problem where, uh, uh, where people have great hospital bills that drains every penny they have. These great misfortunes happen to people. And, he, and then it says, and he bringeth 
uh, a, or begotteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. In other words, you can be rich, and then you can lose it all and leave nothing to your children. These things happen. Finances, money, silver is unpredictable and, uh, and doesn't bring joy. And then he says, verse 15, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. In other words, you came into this world with nothing, you leave this world with nothing. Now, somebody might put some money, silver or gold, in your casket, but wherever you go, you can't use it. It's no good to you. You cannot take it with you. That's what he is saying here. And this also is a sore evil or a, a terribly bad thing that in all points, as he came, so shall he go. And what profit uh, hath he that hath labor, labored for the wind? There's that term for the wind again, the idea of vexation of spirit or trying to capture the wind. It's as, it's as useless as trying to catch the wind. And then verse 17, all his days also he eateth in darkness. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean physical darkness, like sitting in a dark room, though it could apply to that as well. Uh, this is poetic. Remember, setting in darkness or setting in, in uh, a dark place, a darkness of soul, discouragement, despondency, despair, and so forth. Uh, all of his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and, and wrath, anger, and his sickness. So who's he talking about here? Well, this is the last verse that goes with the uh, section on money. And look, if you, the first verse says in verse 10, look at verse 10, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. That's the person who loveth money and loveth increase or abundance. That person is described in verse 17. Darkness, sorrow, anger, sickness. It's very tragic. The New Testament speaks about these same issues. Look back at your screen for a moment and let me show you some New Testament passages. The uh, James 5 says... Oh, wrong passage. Sorry. Here we go. 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's exactly what Solomon said. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. If you've got the necessities of life, be content with that. That's what Solomon keeps telling us. Be content with what you have instead of worried about what you don't have. And then, again, in the New Testament, in the same passage, it says, But they that would be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction or ruin and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, or the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, uh, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See how that fits the verse 17 there? Uh, and these passages saying the same thing. Now again, that is love of money. Verse 10 said love of silver uh, is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the money itself, but the love of it. Some years ago, 
I knew a Christian lady who always talked about money all the time. She didn't have much money. She was about like the rest of us, you know, make average income. And, but they had a roof over their head and food to eat and, and uh, so forth. Husband had a good job, and she had a job, good job. But she always talked about not having money and was always upset about it and always crying over it and so forth. And one day she came to me for counseling, and we talked for a long time. And, and uh, then I mentioned this passage, and she said, yeah, she said, that couldn't apply to me because I don't have any money. I said, well, it's not money causes all these sorrows. It's the love of money. You could be extremely poor and still love money. And it clicked with her. And she told me later, it was a real turning point in her life. Some people have a love for money. They don't have money, but it's not money that's the evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Well, one more section. Oh, we've got to move quickly. Uh, we'll come back to that. Look at verse 18. Behold... Now we're in that, that conclusion section on joy. Behold that which I have seen. This is what I've seen, he says. It is good and comely. The word comely means beautiful. It's actually translated, the same word is translated beautiful in chapter 3. And that word beautiful means more than just aesthetically pleasing to the eye, though that is included. It also means something that's fitting and morally good. And is a fine thing. And so he's saying it is a good and beautiful and a fine thing for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. This is what God has given him to enjoy the common things in life. Just enjoy what you have instead of fretting over what you don't have. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth. Now you might say, boy, this verse doesn't apply to me because I don't have riches or wealth. But if you compare us in this room to the people who lived in Solomon's day, we are rich. We have wealth. Uh, and so uh, maybe not compared to uh, the elite of our nation, but uh, we are rich compared to other people in the world today. We are rich and blessed. And then he says, and hath given him power to eat. In other words, God's also the one that gives you the ability to enjoy your food as well. Food to eat and the ability to enjoy it. That's a gift from God. And then uh, notice, and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. All of this is a gift of God. For he shall uh, not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. God gives him joy in his heart when he trusts the Lord, asks the Lord for it. God answers him with joy in his heart so that he doesn't remember the, uh, or he doesn't dwell on the negative things in life, the hardships and the problems. He's not going to remember in the sense of dwelling on them. He's more, in, he's more involved with joy that comes from God himself. And so, again, the bottom line is you can't find joy in the things of this world or peace or purpose, but you can find them all in Christ. And then, having found that, you can enjoy the blessings of life. You can enjoy the blessings of God and uh, the money God's blessed you with, and so forth. There's 
seven of those conclusions that run through this book. We've looked at three of them now. And let me give you a kind of a summary of those. Uh, Number one, uh, life is a gift from God. We should be thankful. Life should be enjoyed. God intends for us to have joy here in life. And life's joy is a gift from God. It comes from God. You don't work it up or your circumstances don't get good enough, you finally have joy. Joy comes from the Lord. And uh, life can be made beautiful. Remember chapter 3 told us that, and the word beautiful is used here as well. When we see it from God's view, life is made beautiful. Life is linked to eternity. Uh, We are eternally linked, uh, and if you're a believer, to God Himself in a relationship. Life should be lived with contentment. Content with what we have instead of miserable over what we don't have. Life can be enjoyable now. God wants us to enjoy now. And then uh, that word fear. Life should be lived in the fear of God. Fear means awe and wonder and surrender and worship. This is what God wants for us. This is how he has summed that up. At the beginning of my message, I told you about the man, Clo, who lived in the Ivory Coast. He was beaten up. He was blind, and he walked once a week 20 miles to go to church to teach the Bible to the people there in this little village. He was beaten up and sent to the hospital. After he got out of the hospital, the first week after he was out, he traveled 20 miles by foot, blind, to this little village again to teach God's Word because church was that important to him and to the people he spoke to. And he's been going back ever since. He said, he said, I can't see the face of the people I preach to. He said, but one day in heaven, I'll get to see their face. What remarkable faithfulness, strength in the Lord, tenacity. But I'll tell you something else too. He said his journey was joyful. When he travels that 20 miles, it's joyful. Because, and, and in his service for the Lord, it's joyful, he said, because his joy doesn't depend on circumstances or the ability to see or possessions. His joy is from the Lord. And he travels and serves with joy. What is your labor for the Lord? What is it you do for the Lord? And do you have his joy in the midst of it? Solomon, more importantly, God, wants us to find meaning and peace and joy in life. Bow with me, please. With our heads bowed, maybe you'd say this. Preacher, I know I'm saved. There's no doubt about that. I belong to Christ. But I want you to pray for me because I I want that joy and purpose. I want to find all that God has for me. And I don't want to miss out on those things. And uh, maybe you don't have it now, but you're, you desire it. And you're saying, preacher, pray for me. I want the joy and to find purpose and peace in life through Christ. Pray for me. Would you slip your hands up if that's your prayer all over the building? Yes, people everywhere. My hand's up as well. You may put them down. God bless you. Maybe you'd say this, preacher, I'm, I'm not saved. I've never trusted Christ and Christ alone as my Savior and had my sins washed away in His blood. Pray for me. Now, no one will embarrass you, of course, but let us pray for you as we close. 
If that's your prayer, you've never trusted Christ, would you slip your hand up right now? Hold it up long enough for me to see it. As I look around the room. Anyone? Anyone? All right. Father, thank you for our time together. May these truths from your eternal word bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Help us to be rightly related to money, rightly related to you, and to worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Words are on the screen. If you'd like to come as we sing, we invite you to come.